the many meanderings of the first Gen X man. Excellent. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you, fake audience. Thank you so much. You know, you may be a fake audience, but you know what I say? I say the love is real. Anyway, hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of The Many Meanderings of the First Gen X Man. I'm your host and chief meanderer, Will Boudreau. Born January 1965, and Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge in the universe, puts Gen X as starting in 1965, ergo, the first Gen X Man. Or close enough anyway for the slacker generation. So, Season 1, Episode 1. If this were Star Wars... This would be the film that came to be known as A New Hope, but which Gen Xers like me just pretty much call Star Wars. A New Hope sounds to me more like a Christian retreat weekend where you sing songs with a bald but ponytailed guitar guy, and then you make a big spaghetti dinner and talk about the groovier parts of the New Testament. But I digress. Today is, well, today is actually one of 31 completely indistinguishable days of May 2020. Not much going on in the world except, oh, existential dread, and the increasing whiff of civil unrest in the air due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We have three sticks of meandering for you to chew on today. Just a reminder that, as always, The Many Meanderings is sugar-free and won't stick to most dental work. Very good. A little something to listen to while you're driving to the grocery store in a hazmat suit, while you're trying to drown out your kids screaming they don't understand the stupid advanced biology lab they're supposed to do online while your wife opens yet another bottle of wine. You know, to paraphrase the bangles, just another Pandemic Monday. First up, we'll be chatting about disasters I've known, starting with Boston's great blizzard of 78. And of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. wonder what they'll call it in the future. I'm sure someone will think of a very pithy name. My dad used to talk about another disaster, Boston's great molasses flood of 1919. That was when a 2.3 million gallon storage tank of molasses exploded in downtown Boston, causing a 25-foot wave of hot molasses to suddenly sweep through the Boston city streets at 35 miles per hour. Just think about that for a minute. You step out of the dry cleaners, and you get swept up in a tsunami of molten brown sugar. It's like the Augustus Gloop scene in Willy Wonka if Michael Bay had been the director. 21 people died. Bostonians claimed the North End smelled faintly of molasses on hot summer days for decades afterwards. Speaking of pithy names, it came to be called, are you ready for this? The Boston Molassacre. Now that's some good disaster nicknaming. The first disaster of my lifetime was the Great Blizzard of 78. On the evening of February 5th, 1978, it started snowing in Massachusetts. It stopped snowing two days later. A record 27.1 inches of snow fell in Boston. About 100 people died in the Northeast with 54 deaths happening in Massachusetts alone. All that was going on, and it was truly tragic, but since I was 13 years old, the most important result of the storm for me was that we didn't have school for an entire week. Remember, this was the Boston area in the 70s, and a snowstorm was by no means any guarantee of school being closed. These days, it's not uncommon for school to be closed for my kids when there's snow in the forecast. When I was a kid, we'd wait by the kitchen radio for our school to be called, and a never-ending list of Massachusetts towns read out in alphabetical order. No school in Malden. Marblehead. Marlboro, 
Marshfield, Mattapoisett, Maynard. <gasps> Did he say Maynard? Oh yeah, time to put our feet into plastic Wonder Bread bags, then put our snow boots on over the Wonder Bread bags, then put our mittens on, then our coats on over the mittens, then take our mittens off to put our hats on, then put our mittens back on, then go outside for five minutes, and then beg to come back in for hot cocoa. My fondest memory of the blizzard of 78 was by far cross-country skiing downtown to get supplies with my dad. My dad was an early adopter of the late 70s cross-country skiing craze. He loved the whole thing, the weird long socks, the dorky knickers, the sticky wax application which I assisted him with in front of his workbench in our freezing unfinished basement. But even at that age, I did appreciate that this was something special that my dad and I shared. Awkwardly sliding through the snowy woods behind our house. I also loved how magically quiet the woods were during those Sunday afternoon ski outings. So quiet, you could hear the drip, drip, drip of the ice melting off the branches. A gloriously quiet moment in nature is one of life's vastly underrated pleasures. So, a few days into our snowbound week in 1978, my dad and I suited up and set off to ski downtown to get some much-needed groceries. It was really fun. In fact, when I think about it now, it was just about the best thing I ever did with my dad. I mean, we were skiing in the middle of the street, all the way to the village of my hometown, Maynard, Mass. Streets were closed, so no cars were in sight, just the occasional snowmobile zooming by us, causing an inevitable scowl from my dad, who reserved a special contempt for any kind of motorized recreational toy. What a surreal experience it was to be skiing on streets where we usually roamed with our Ford LTD station wagon. It was post-apocalyptic joy such as I had never experienced. I remember we skied to our beloved convenience store, Cumberland Farms, in the middle of town. And we pretty much just bought milk, bread, and eggs, the go-to staples for survival in the American suburbs. I'd be willing to bet we also bought my mom a carton of Winston Reds, since she went through one every week without fail. Ah, the 70s. Halfway through the journey home, my dad stopped and took out the leather wine flask he had brought along and offered me a sip of Ernest and Julio Gallo's finest burgundy. The leather wine flask was something he had specifically purchased for cross-country skiing outings. My dad wasn't usually a day drinker. In fact, my mom would often remark that my dad would drink half a can of beer when he was done mowing the lawn and return the remaining half to the fridge for later consumption. I, unfortunately, did not inherit that valuable beer discipline. It wasn't really about the wine. I just think he liked the old world romance of the leather wine flask. It was part of the whole gestalt of cross-country skiing, wearing the knickers, carrying wine around in a leather sack, burning our fingers, applying wax with a blowtorch. He was all in to all of it. I tried the ice-cold, cheap red wine and, of course, immediately gagged. But it had happened. I had officially had a drink with my dad. That was a good moment. My father and I standing in the middle of Main Street in downtown Maynard, squirting wine into our mouths in the brisk New England sunshine. To this day, though, I hate Burgundy. And now on to the current disaster. It feels completely impossible that I have lived to witness an even worse tragedy beset America than what was supposed to be our Pearl Harbor, 9-11. I keep telling my boys that they're gonna be telling their grandkids about this one. They just look at me blankly and then go back to pretending to do their online schooling, but actually, 
watching inappropriate YouTube videos starring potty mouth gamers from Denmark. I feel like since mid-March, I've been watching a car crash in super slow motion, but it's that thing where you're in a dream and you can't cry out. You open your mouth, but no sound escapes, and then you wake up and there's one of your wife's old socks stuck in your mouth. It's kind of like we're all trapped in the world's least funny sitcom. In fact, let's go ahead and cue the ironically happy sitcom theme music. Here's a typical day, which is to say every single day without exception. I wake up anywhere between 3.30 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. If I'm up at 3.30, I'll head downstairs and binge watch Netflix or Amazon Prime. I've always been a big TV watcher, but I have reached peak conditioning during this pandemic. You know you're watching a lot of Netflix when they hit you with the prompt. Are you still watching Money Heist Season 3? Yes. Yes, I am, Netflix. Stop judging me. I'm a stressed-out father of four, and nothing feels better than a trashy heist series badly dubbed from Spanish. And by the way, Disney+, Plus, where the hell is Season 2 of The Mandalorian? Don't you know the world needs more Baby Yoda right now? Anyway, yes, I have become an early morning TV binger. But I choose to be okay with that. At least it's TV, not vodka. Around 7.30 a.m., my 10-year-old twins start coming downstairs. We snuggle, sometimes watch a little more TV. What did they do without TV during the Spanish flu pandemic? Did they have radio at least? God, I hope so. At this point, I start making the first of several breakfasts. The twins just eat cereal, usually Cheerios, honey, and milk which has inspired the catchy song, Cheerios, honey, and milk, doot, doot. Sometimes they have a little extra, doot, doot. As part of my overeating to compensate for COVID-19 stress, I always make at least one breakfast meat. Turkey bacon, bacon bacon, link sausage, Canadian bacon, ham, or corned beef hash. Sometimes a couple. Out there, it's the apocalypse. In my kitchen, it's the apocalypse. Sorry about that. It won't happen again. Uh, probably will. I try and drag my teenage boys out of bed by 10. This usually involves a complicated call and response method, usually lasting around 90 minutes. Tomorrow morning, I'm considering skipping the whole time to get up dance and going right to a bucket of ice water. It would be messy, but profoundly satisfying. I'm going to take a quick break now for a word from this week's fake sponsor, the Lodge Cast Iron Cookware Company. I am the proud owner of a Lodge double burner cast iron griddle, and I think it may be my favorite possession of all time. This thing is a beast. It looks like it was forged in the cracks of doom by master metalworking orcs. It's about two and a half feet of solid cast iron, kind of like a section from a World War II battleship's hull. It weighs approximately 500 pounds. Do not drop it on your toe, unless you habitually cook pancakes while wearing steel-toed boots. Every time I use my lodge griddle, I feel like I'm making breakfast at a lumberjack camp in the Maine woods sometime in the late 1800s. So it's not just a piece of indestructible cookware, it's a time machine. Also, there's a reverse side with ridges that when preheated, will make you the steak they serve on Saturday night in cowboy heaven. Lodge Cast Iron Cookware, recommended by me and Paul Bunyan. And if you like this fake ad, Lodge Company, feel free to make it a real one.
These days, my kids are playing on various screens, sometimes by 3 p.m., but definitely by 4 p.m. Does that make my wife and I terrible parents? Absolutely. According to social media, we should be carefully scheduling our kids' days in 45-minute increments, including schoolwork, mental wellness exercises, nutritional snacking, outside exercise, mask sewing for the local senior citizens, online violin and Mandarin Chinese lessons, followed by Zoom playdates and, of course, a rigorous household chore schedule. My kids have pretty much been walking around like a bunch of Vikings in pajamas, eating and then smashing their dishes on the floor, screaming in what sounds like guttural Scandinavian about their excessive schoolwork, and then defecating without flushing the toilet. If Norman Rockwell were to come back to life in order to paint the typical plucky American family smiling through the challenges of COVID home quarantine, he'd take one look at my gang and hastily put his pipe back in his pocket and sprint right past my house. Is it, is it beer o'clock yet? Okay, on to our second bit of meandering. This one's a madman memory. My Pizza Hut commercial with Donald Trump. I spent three decades on Madison Avenue working my way up from copywriter to big shot. I still work in the ad biz for my day job these days as a consultant. You know, when there has been a worldwide freeze in marketing spending? Anyway, it was 1998 and I was working as a creative director at BBDO New York on the Pizza Hut account. They came to us excited about their launch of a new pizza. They were going to call it The Big New Yorker. No expense would be spared, but we had to get this one right. Or, as is always the threat in the wonderful world of advertising, we'd all be fired. My partner and I were one of the many teams assigned to work on this. A couple of rounds of ideas had already been rejected by the client. It was easy to talk about a New York-style pizza from Pizza Hut, but the clients were insisting that the campaign be about the fact that this pizza was from New York and it was big. Thus the name, The Big New Yorker. As we sat around one day mulling this new direction, one of us probably my creative partner. His name is Rick Midler, and he's one of the most talented and funniest people I've ever met. Anyway, one of us said, Ever wonder why New Yorkers have big mouths? Because they eat big pizza. Boom. An ad campaign was born. Now we just needed to make noise in the time-honored Madison Avenue way. Hire a bunch of celebrities. Which in this case, meant we had to hire a bunch of celebrities from New York with big mouths. Donald Trump was at the top of the list. If you're curious, the other two celebrities we used were Spike Lee, always good for a rather opinionated and extroverted New Yorker, and Fran Drescher, who at the time was a household name due to her hit TV comedy, The Nanny. She was also actually hysterical as Bobby Fleckman in This Is Spinal Tap. The three TV commercials all followed the same structure. We see the celebrity walking around New York City exhibiting their larger-than-life personalities. Then the announcer asked the question, Ever wonder why New Yorkers have big mouths? Because they eat big pizza, like the big New Yorker from Pizza Hut. Incidentally, since Spike Lee was involved in this effort, he was able to get us the incomparable John Totoro to do the announcer voiceover. I suspect it was his first and last gig as a Pizza Hut commercial announcer. But he nailed it. Anyway, I'm sure you're curious, so here's the audio from my Donald Trump Pizza Hut ad. Just imagine the Donald walking all around New York City, including the top of Trump Tower, in the middle of Times Square. 
Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Donald Trump. We're all cut from the same cloth, and that cloth is very, very large. It's not too big, is it? No. Turn left on Trump Avenue. Ever wonder why New Yorkers have such big mouths? Go big or go home. Because we eat big pizza, like the big New Yorker from Pizza Hut. 16 inches of real New York pizza dripping with cheese at a very un-New York price. $9.99. They've got to be losing money on this. The big New Yorker, new from Pizza Hut, is beautiful. So, what do you think? Let me just clarify something. When you heard Trump say, it's not too big, is it? He was referring to an architectural model of Manhattan with one skyscraper about four times higher than any other building in the city. The suck-up architect's response is a textbook example of an actor creating a character with one word when he says, no. I'm sure you're wondering, what was Mr. Trump like? Well, a few things stand out in my mind. He was quite impatient, much busier and more important acting than either Fran Drescher or Spike Lee. Mr. Trump would do one or two takes maximum for each of those setups. Then he always wanted to leave and come back in an hour for the next camera setup. A couple of times he didn't like his performance and would blow the take by saying, that sucked, right after he said his line of dialogue. By the way, he really liked saying what was likely the finest line of advertising copy I ever wrote or will write in my entire life. Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Donald Trump were all cut from the same cloth, and that cloth is very, very large. I remember him saying, can you imagine anyone else being able to say that line? He had a point. One other standout moment was what came to be known on the rest of the shoot as the powder room story. Bear in mind, I heard this secondhand from our commercials director. Mr. Trump took the director on a tour of his apartment in Trump Tower. The director used the powder room, and when he came out, he commented on the exotic-looking dark green marble that covered the small bathroom from floor to ceiling. Mr. Trump responded, and I'm paraphrasing from 20 years ago here. You see that marble? That marble is rare. So rare that guys with machine guns have to go into the jungles to get that marble. That's how rare it is. It takes guys with machine guns to get it. They go in with machine guns to get that marble. The director nodded and smiled politely, as one does. He later told us that he had no idea what that meant. I myself currently have a marble countertop. I seriously doubt any automatic weapons were employed in the sourcing of my marble. I would imagine it required some sort of drill or pickaxe, but maybe I'm just naive. The Big New Yorker pizza was a huge hit and the work was very well received. I think it was the most successful new product launch ever at the time for Pizza Hut. It actually won an Effie, which is an award for marketing effectiveness. So, thank you, Donald Trump. You are now, and always have been, a born salesman. Time now for the third meander. It's been the roughest spring that most of us can remember, so I thought it might be pleasant to turn our minds to happy summer thoughts. So here's my ode to summer in the suburbs in the 70s. How's that for alliteration? Our pool was not a fancy in-ground affair like most of the others in our neighborhood. We lived in a development of brand spanking new four-bedroom colonials. The houses were marvels of 1970s interior design. Thick two-inch shag carpeting, family rooms with faux wood paneling, kitchen appliances gleaming proudly in your color choice of avocado or goldenrod. My mother always took great pride in the fact that she and my dad only bought brand new houses. 
First, the three-bedroom ranch that they snagged for a cool $16,000 with no money down, thanks to the GI Bill, circa around 1963 or so. Then, the big upgrade to the two-story, four-bedroom on a corner lot, one-third of an acre, nobody in back of us, just woods, which my dad always wanted, for the low, low price of 36 k Of course, since it was the early 70s, the mortgage rate was around 8%, but still, 36 k for a four-bedroom house in the Boston suburbs. Not too shabby. Our pool was an above-ground model, a somewhat rickety circle of brown and white aluminum. I helped my dad assemble it over a series of summer Saturdays. I remember first hearing just what I needed by the cars on the radio my dad let us listen to while we did our pool installation in the scorching Massachusetts summer sun. The DJ, probably Dale Dormand, excited to introduce this cooler-than-cool new band out of our native Boston. The pool assembly required a larger screwdriver than my dad owned, so he borrowed one from my Uncle Bill down the street. It was an enormous tool with a nearly foot-long shaft the color of pencil lead and an old-fashioned wooden handle. It looked like the kind of tool they used to build monumental things, like the Empire State Building or the Titanic. Three decades or so later, cleaning my late father's basement out as we prepared to sell my parents' house, I found that screwdriver still dangling in a hole off to the side of his workbench. Apparently, Uncle Bill hadn't had to assemble any swimming pools or ocean liners in the ensuing decades. We used the pool every single day in the summer, feeling extra fortunate when my dad and our grandpa built us a wooden deck on one side so we can do cannonballs, or play blind man and walk in with our eyes shut, or climb out surreptitiously during a game of Marco Polo. One summer, my dad bought some enormous old truck tire inner tubes, and we had a blast bouncing up and down on them, one kid on either side, making waves that turned our little pool into a temporary tempest. I remember my eyes being so burned by the chlorine at the end of some summer nights that every light source was ringed by a fuzzy haze, like viewing the whole world through a lens smeared with Vaseline. One afternoon, all the adults in our neighborhood got the bright idea to have a dip and a drink in every pool. By the time the sun set and they were at the last pool, someone suggested they all skinny dip. My parents, staunchly square, came straight home. But before they left, my dad would later tell us, laughing until there were tears in his eyes, about one of our neighbors. We'll call him Mr. Brown. My dad would say, and then Larry Brown went home to get his glasses. He went home to get his glasses. Another neighborhood dad slept on his front lawn that night. There were, to my knowledge, no subsequent pool crawls. My favorite pool memories, though, were those rare times when we'd all go swimming after the sun had set. My dad would propose this on particularly steamy summer nights. We'd shut off Happy Days or MASH or whatever we were watching on TV, and we'd head out to swim under a starry sky. Even my mom, whose sun allergy, due to lupus, prevented her from swimming with us during the day, would usually join us during these nocturnal pool parties. My dad would always remark that the pool water felt delightful. My mom, paddling along beside him, careful not to get her once-a-week salon-made astronaut's wife bouffant the slightest bit damp, would always agree. Yes, dear, it is delightful. The water always felt warm and and somehow seemed to take on a, a comforting, heavier consistency at night like a liquid form of the therapeutic heavy blankets that have come in vogue for the nighttime treatment of anxiety. 
It was a time of almost magical family serenity. Gone was the usual bickering between my sisters and I. Absent, too, was the work stress that plagued my dad and gave him near-constant headaches. My mom would smile as she watched this miracle in the moonlight, a family together bathed in shimmering, chlorinated water, floating in a tranquility as fleeting as a summer rainstorm. The only agitated member of the family was Gretel, our yipping miniature schnauzer, who'd scamper back and forth on the pool deck, anxious to catch a wave of pool water splashed in her direction. It was that time of my childhood when summer seemed to stretch for months on end, when afternoons meant root beer-flavored Italian ice from the ice cream truck, when sunblock was a -a once-a-summer novelty and my inevitable sunburn was treated with a few quick sprays of something from Manning's drugstore called Solar Cane, when I stayed barefoot so long that my school shoes in September felt as heavy as those wooden shoes in Holland. At this point, No one knows what summer of 2020 will be like. My teenage boys both have birthdays in June, and it's become something of a tradition for us to have a big birthday pool party for each of them. Will that be happening this year? It's anybody's guess. By the way, if you want to hear some really enthusiastic cursing, come to a teenage boy's birthday pool party. The curse words are all like brand new sports cars that the boys just got and are dying to take out for a test drive. We'll see if that profane medley will be wafting across our less-than-manicured Westchester lawn next month. I hope so. It'll mean life has gone back to some kind of normal. That's all for today's episode of The Many Meanderings of the First Gen X Man. I'd like to thank you all very much for listening. Tell your friends, Gen X and otherwise. If you like what you heard today, please do like us on Facebook or Instagram, where you can find us at at FirstGenXMan. That's also where you can find exciting, exclusive photos and a transcript of every episode. And if you really did enjoy this, please consider leaving a positive review on Apple Podcast. That's all for now, and I'll see you when we meander again. The many meanderings of the first Gen X man. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs>